open your Bibles, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 10. And I have decided this morning that we would return to our study of Matthew here on Sunday morning. For the past few weeks, we've looked at uh, our Sunday evening service on Sunday morning, and that was messages from Revelation chapter 20 concerning the doctrine of hell. And there is still one more message to go in that series, and I'm going to bring that message tonight. And so if you're interested in hearing the last message on hell, this evening we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, not only the biblical reasons for hell, but also rational reasons why hell must be true. But I decided that we would save that for this evening because we're beginning a new section here uh, in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and I wanted to, I'm going to preach several sermons from this passage, and so I, I wanted to get started so here so we could continue on on Sunday mornings. So if you'll look in Matthew chapter uh, 10, we're going to begin today with the 24th verse of this chapter. And I want to recall to your memory that Jesus is instructing his disciples, the apostles, concerning their first missionary journey. And he's giving them instructions about what they could expect when they went out preaching the gospel. Now, they were especially commissioned by Christ to be his apostles. An apostle means one that is sent. And they were to preach the gospel... At this time, it was restricted only to Israel. This first trip, they would preach only to Israel. And they were to proclaim the message that Christ is the Messiah. That he came, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in order for them to escape God's wrath, to escape God's judgment, that they must believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They must repent of their sins and receive him as both Lord and Savior. And I might add to that, that the gospel that the apostles preached is the same gospel that we preach today. God hasn't changed the message in any degree. Uh, The message hasn't changed. The demands that we find here in Matthew chapter 10 have not changed. In order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the follower of him, you have to meet the demands that Jesus lays out in this chapter. So none of that's changed. The the method hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. The the, uh, way that we're supposed to tell people about it, that's the method again. None of that's changed, and the human heart hasn't changed. And that's a very important thing for us to remember because hearts today are just as cold as they were when Jesus came and people are just as much in rejection of the gospel of Christ as when Jesus first came. So we face that same problem and then there's something else that hasn't changed and that is the way that people are so hostile towards other towards Christians. You look at our world today, you look at the United States, and see even how our government has now become hostile towards Christianity. And Jesus says, you can expect this. This is one of the things that's going to happen to anyone who faithfully proclaims the message of Christ. So as we go through this section, going on down to verse number 42, which we'll get to somewhat later, there's always the undertow of persecution. That always looms in the background of these teachings. But there's also a parallel truth that is naturally inferred by the reality of all of this. And that is the cost of discipleship. The high cost that commitment to Christ brings to the one who wants to follow him. Now it's not really an optional cost to pay. It's not yours to say, well, that's a pretty high cost that I'd like to be a Christian, and I'd like to be a part of all of what you're talking about, but I'm not sure that I'm willing to accept the cost of it. 
Well, here the scriptures tell us that if you're unwilling to pay the cost, if you're unwilling to give a full commitment to Jesus Christ, then you can't be his disciple. It's not yours to decide which way that you want to go. You have to go his way. So true salvation is always synonymous with discipleship. Now, in this section, we find out what a true disciple is and what a true Christianity involves. And so, if you fall short of this, then you have no right to call yourself Christian. In fact, in verse number 33, Jesus says that those who deny this kind of faith, a faith that doesn't enable them to actually meet the standard that he lays out here, then that is not a faith that's been given by God. So we're going to read the scriptures. If you'd stand with me, please, once again, uh, looking at Matthew 24. And we're only going to deal with two verses today, 24 and 25. But I want to read down to verse number 33, so you'll kind of get the whole gist of the passage of this particular part of it. Verse number 24, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more should they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you might want to relate that verse to what we've been studying these past three Sunday mornings, that God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse number 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word, the reading of it. Bless us as we look into this today and help us as we give the message that you'd have us to give to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past several weeks, as we've looked at Matthew chapter 10, I've commented on the shallow evangelism that seems to be the mantra of many evangelical churches today. The word evangelical comes from the word euangelion, and we find it here in our in our scriptures as translated as the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Evangelism, that's what it's about. And An evangelical church is one that believes in preaching the gospel of Christ and believes in reaching people with that gospel. But the problem with the modern evangelical church is that although many churches are still trying to reach people uh, for what they say is for the Lord Jesus Christ, they are no longer actually preaching the real gospel of Christ. Now, this is the true, this is true in many mega churches today that are definitely reaching out. But what they put in place of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the apostles is a substitute gospel 
that does not require a radical change to take place in a believer once he has accepted Christ. So it's a gospel that really doesn't do anything for the person that's saved, and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But the gospel that Jesus preached is a life-altering gospel. And the Word tells us that there are certain changes that take place in a person when he becomes a Christian. He becomes a totally different person with different kinds of desires. He takes on a whole new spiritual perspective. Now, the Apostle Paul explained what our pre-conversion life was like in the book of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, And you hath he quickened, that means made alive, and you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. There Paul is explaining what you were before you came to Christ. Your manner of life was much different before Instead, what you wanted to do before was to fulfill all the lust of your flesh and the desires of your flesh. And he goes on to say that Christ has brought us out of that. He's changed our desires. He's given us new life, and he's put within us a desire to do good works, a desire to work for Christ, a desire to live for him. And Paul says that these good works that God has given are ordained that we should walk in them. And so that means that if you continue in your old life and you still live the same way that you lived before, you cannot be a child of God. And the reasoning is very simple. Nothing has actually happened to you. If there's no change that takes place in your life after you say that you have believed in Christ, then really nothing ever happened to you. That's not the same as saying that good works is the vehicle by which you can be saved. We know the Bible doesn't teach that, but it does tell us that a person who has a real faith, one that is really trusted in Christ, has all of their confidence in him, that person is going to be a different person. Now, the change in this new replacement gospel of evangelicalism today is that a different life is really not necessitated by belief in the gospel. That salvation itself merely consists of getting some fire insurance to keep you out of hell. And so modern evangelicalism is more often a a seeker-sensitive model in which converts come into the front door of the church carrying all of their baggage. They bring it all with them. They go through the assembly line and they get their hell vaccination. And they go out the back door of the church with the very same baggage that they had when they came in. All things are the same as they were before. The only difference is they have been immunized from hell and they've been given eternal life. Well, there's a huge problem with that. And it shows up right here in the passage that we're studying today. It shows up in verses 24 and 25 where Jesus says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. Now there we find that Jesus is making a personal comparison between him and his disciples. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and that's the personal comparison to Jesus. Now a few weeks ago, someone asked me, what does the Bible mean by disciple? 
does it merely refer to the 12 apostles? And that's a good question, and really the meaning of disciple figures into the particular section of Scripture that we're speaking of here. The word disciple refers to anyone who is a Christian. It's a designation that is synonymous with the redeemed. So all true believers are by necessity disciples. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is an adherent to another's teaching. And in Scripture, you always find this to be true, that all true believers were adherents of Christ. All of them committed themselves to Christ. They said, we want to be taught by the teacher. So being a disciple is not another level of salvation. You don't become a saved person. You get born again, then you have to wait a certain period of time before you actually become a disciple. A disciple and a believer in Jesus Christ are exactly the same thing. And it means a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we teach here, and we believe that the Bible teaches, and what Jesus is saying, that contained within the call of salvation is the believer's submission to Christ. You accept the role of being a learner, of being a disciple, of being a servant, And if you come to Jesus Christ with any other intention than that, then you're not going to be a true disciple of his, a a true saved person. If he, he does not give a lesser type of saving faith that leaves you short of discipleship and commitment or conformity. And so what I'm giving you here this morning is just really basic Christianity. It's... It's so fundamental that this is impossible for us to miss. If you come to Christ with intentions that you're going to hang on to anything that you were before, if you come to him without full repentance from your sin, without faith in Christ, without submission to him, then you might as well stop right now. You can go back and you can look at chapter 9, and you may remember we talked about a few times those disciples and who, who, people who wanted to be disciples, rather, in chapter 9, and they came to meet Jesus at the boat, and they said, we want to go with you. But Jesus revealed to them that their commitment was not right, and Jesus says, you can't go with me. So they weren't allowed to even get into his boat. And this is what happens to you if you decide that you're going to come to Christ, but you're going to keep all the old things, keep the old life. You have no intention of surrendering yourself completely to him. Then Jesus is not going to let you get into his boat. Now, one of the reasons that the word disciple is so important to this study in Matthew chapter 10 is because Jesus began the chapter by giving specific instructions to his apostles. In verse number 1, they were disciples. That means they were just like you and me. But in verse number 2, they were apostles. Jesus gave them a special commission, a special calling. And what he did there was to give them a calling that is actually above discipleship. That's a calling to apostleship. And in that sense, they stand unique in all the history of the church. There is nobody like those original 12 that Jesus chose because they were chosen as apostles. So the subsequent instructions that Jesus gives in chapter 10 were for them as apostles. And so I restricted my comments in the very beginning for this reason that we, we had to look at them as the work, in their work as, of apostleship and then also to compare how preachers of the gospel go about the very same types of things in some ways that the apostles did. But we notice here when we come to verse number 24 that the scope of Jesus' teachings broadens out. And now we're back to disciples again. In fact, we're back to servants. 
which is really the word slave in Scripture. This is doulos. It means a slave. And that's what all believers are. Disciples of Christ are slaves of Jesus Christ. And so now, from verse 24 on, we find that the thought here is more generalized to those who are all true believers in Christ. That means anyone who has decided to follow Christ, servants of Christ, he's a slave and he is a disciple. And the question here is, are you going to meet the high demands of discipleship that are taught in these verses? And the simple truth of the matter is if you evaluate your life and you do not fall into the pattern that's spoken of here, then you're not really a believer. And thus, you're not really saved. Now, the very first thought that's developed here is the similarity between Christ and his disciples. The disciple shall be as his master, and the servant shall be as his Lord. And we have to keep this in mind, that that no matter what subject that we touch on as we go through this, a true disciple is like Christ in every area. What is the overarching theme? All the way through this, that dominates the discussion. It dominated the previous verses, and it takes us all the way down to verse number 42. The primary theme that underlies all of this is persecution. Verses 16 through 23 were about as serious as you could get on the inevitability of persecution. There in verse number 16, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And we discussed how persecution comes from religious wolves and from ruling wolves, that is, from the government, and also from your relatives who can turn into be wolves when you trust Christ as your Savior. Jesus said that a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So very simply put, becoming a Christian, putting your faith in Christ, puts you into hostile territory. And that's what discipleship is about. You are in the process of being made conformable to Jesus Christ. And so that means certain things are going to happen to you as a disciple of his. Now, there are two important points that really need to be made as we consider this today. And the first one is that the purpose is the same. The purpose of the world's hostility is the same towards you as it was towards Christ. Now, we look at Christ and... We see what happened to him. The Bible says that he was rejected of men. He was hated. And the reasons that Jesus was so hated by by these religious rulers and others was that he devastated their system of self-righteousness. Jesus took away their self-esteem. He took away their self-satisfaction. He took away their selfish pride. And he said, the only way that you are ever going to be saved is to look to me. You have to repent of your wickedness. And he said, I didn't come to call sinners to repentance, not people who think that they're already good enough. I didn't come to call people like that. But do you realize how that that gospel of Christ has been replaced today? Instead, what you hear in most places is that Jesus wants you to have self-esteem. And Jesus wants you to be self-satisfied. He wants you to be proud of what you are. And so what we have today is really a gospel of self rather than a gospel for the glory of God. It concentrates on people rather than on God himself. And so when you are become a disciple of Jesus and you become like the master, then what would you expect would be the result of that? Well, you can expect that you're not going to be treated any differently than Jesus was treated. 
You see, the disciples had to be reminded of this, and this is what Jesus is doing. If Jesus is the Messiah, if he really is the King of Israel, then why aren't we reigning with him right now? Why are we having so much trouble? Why are we being persecuted? Osteen says that when you become a Christian, the world will favor you. I heard him say that myself. God is going to make sure that you receive better treatment. Well, if that's so, then the world is going to treat you differently than the master. That is 180 degrees opposite of what Jesus taught. The world is not going to favor you unless your gospel is different from that of Jesus. And if you have a different gospel, then yes, the world will favor you. But if you have it, that only proves that you don't meet the New Testament description of a disciple. Folks, I'd rather be a disciple of Jesus Christ than a disciple of Joel Osteen any day. So Jesus reminds them there's a comparison here to be made. The disciple is not above his master. The servant is not above his Lord. And he even says, if anything, the servant will be treated worse. What does he say? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call him of his household? You ever think about that? You ever wonder why that verse is true? If they didn't hesitate to kill Christ, then what will they do to his followers? You look at, again, look at the life of Christ and look at he taught and the reaction many times to his teaching. There, there, was, a, there was just a, an aura of personal gravitas about Jesus. They recognized there was something different about him. Even on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he spoke, the Bible says they fell back when he spoke to them. They recognize there's a certain amount of authority in the voice of Jesus Christ. He's unlike anything, anyone that we've ever seen before. But they didn't hold anything back when they beat him. And they weren't restrained when they drove nails into his hands and his feet. He was full of grace and truth and they admitted no one ever spoke like this man. And so if they would treat the master like that, the one who had that aura of holiness about him, the authority that he had, how do you think that they're going to treat his servants? How are they going to treat slaves of Christ? Well, the Bible is showing us here that even worse treatment can be expected. It's not exactly a Joel Osteen outcome here in Matthew chapter 10. Now listen to what they said about Jesus. They called him Beelzebub. I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. I'm not going to go into a long explanation of this this morning, but this term Beelzebub is really just an expression as another name for Satan. And it referred to a heathen god of the Ekronites. In the Old Testament, this is one of the gods that spiked the anger of Judah, or Jehovah rather, when Israel went into idolatry. Now, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, I'm going to read just a few verses that mention this god of the Ekronites. And this is in connection to a bad fall that was taken by Ahaziah, who was the uh, king of Israel. He was very seriously hurt, and he didn't know whether he would live or die. Now, notice what he did. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And if you know something about the Old Testament, you know that Ahab and Jezebel were the nemesis of, uh, of Elijah. They were constantly at each other. And God gave Elijah the prophet certain words to tell them, and, and it was just a big mess between Ahab and Jezebel all the time. Ahab, Elijah, and Jezebel all the time. But verse number 2, Ahaziah, Ahab has, died, Ahab has died, and Ahaziah comes to the throne. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. 
And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that you go to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, that is, back to King Ahaziah, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shall surely die. Now this God, Baalzebub, or Beelzebub, as we have in the New Testament, it's a term that refers to the Lord of the flies. This is what they thought of Jesus Christ, the creator of this universe. They referred to him as the Lord of the flies. A very demeaning name. Now in the New Testament times, the Jews would never even think of worshiping those false gods. At least they had that right. But they associated, by this time, those false gods with Satan himself. And so they used this name of a heathen god, and it referred to Satan, and they, and they applied it to Jesus. So what did they say about him? Well, when he cast a demon out of a blind and a dumb man, and this is just a few pages over in Matthew chapter 12, it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So do you see what they say about Jesus? Now, if they would speak that kind of blasphemy against the very Son of God, then what do you think that they're going to do to you? They admitted that there was something special about him. They knew that he was different. What do you think that they're going to do to us that are his lowly slaves? You see, the purpose of our message is the same. We, we preach the same message as Christ, so the reaction's going to be the same. And that's because the hearts of men have not changed. It's the same as it was then. People hate the gospel of Christ. And so the way that people treat you can be sort of a measuring rod of your Christianity. It's like a meter of Christianity. The closer you get to Christ and the more that you act like him, the worse your treatment will become. And if you are totally committed to him, if you've given your life completely to him so that you throw yourself into the service of God with everything that you have, that meter is going to go through the roof. Now, I'm preaching to you, and I'm preaching to me today, and it may be that things are not a lot harder on us than they are because we've become just a little bit too standoffish about our faith, and we don't really act like Christ, and so we're not treated like him. Now, let me go a little bit further. There, there are two very special words that Jesus gives in verse 25 that we need to pay attention to, and these are the words, enough and household. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Now here we see the privilege of sharing. Now remember, we're, we're dealing with the principle of persecution, and what the Bible is telling us here, it is a privilege 
to share in the persecution of Christ. He says, it is enough that a disciple be as his master and the servant as his Lord. How many of you think that God's done enough for you? Not too many hands. Well, there are lots of people who think that God hasn't quite done enough. And so they're looking for a rich lifestyle. And they're looking to live on easy street. And they're looking to skate along in life and sail along and everything go just fine. And when time comes to die, they put their pajamas on, go to bed, and wake up in heaven. And that's what they expect the Christian life is going to be like. It's got to be easy street for me. So what they think is God really hasn't quite done enough yet. So if I don't have all the things that the world has to offer, if I don't have the riches, and you hear it preached all the time, if I don't have all these good things, if I don't have all of that, then it's just like God has not yet done enough for me. But I would submit to you that if you are a born-again Christian, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that God has already done enough for you. He's done enough. And if you're looking for a few bucks in this life, what you're doing is playing around in the dirt. And that's not where God wants you to be. You're down in the gutter if you're thinking about this life. A Christian doesn't think that way. And you know why? Number one, because we are exalted to the riches of Christ. When you become a believer in him, you have already been exalted to the riches of Christ. Peter says, we have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. Now here is the answer then to people who think that persecution is just a bad way out for a Christian. It's bad for a Christian to suffer persecution. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why, we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen, or things which are seen, rather, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And he goes on in the fifth chapter, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. There's some statements that Paul made there that have absolutely amazed me ever since I picked up a Bible and started to read them. When I think about what the Apostle Paul went through, I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, where Paul says, our light affliction, and it blows my mind that Paul could say a statement like that. Because here is a man who, who said, I was beaten five times by the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes, save one. That means 39 stripes Five times he received at the hands of the Jews. And that's not like talk, that's not talking about, you know, getting out a little switch and, or a little belt and just slapping the kids on the, on the rear. I wasn't supposed to say that because you're not even supposed to do that, are you, anymore? But he's not talking about that. He's talking about a cat of nine tails. He's talking about being flogged, having furrows drugged down your back by bits of bone and, and such and glass and pottery and so forth attached to the end of a whip. That's what he means when he talks about being beaten by the Jews. This is also the man who was stoned and left for dead. This is a man who was shipwrecked because of his faith in Christ, left out in the, in the deep, not knowing whether he's going to live or die, as far as the world was concerned, because he trusted in God. Here is a man who had all this weight upon him, all these cares that were upon him. He was thrown into prison. And Paul says, so what? What is that compared to the eternal weight of glory? He says, all this stuff in this life is temporal. This belongs to the world. It's all worthless. 
And he said it in a very impolite way, you might think. Paul said, that stuff, everything in the world is just like manure to me. He said that in the book of Philippians. And here he says, if this earthly house of our tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And what does he mean? Well, he's talking about the earthly tabernacle is the body. The body gets battered and bruised and persecuted. It might even be killed. And he says, if this life gets snuffed out like that, what is that to people who are in the household of God? We have eternal life in the heavens. And here's the question that every Christian has to ask himself when it concerns these things. Are you willing to trade the good things of this life, whatever it might be, whatever the world gives you, are you willing to trade that? for eternal life in heaven? Are are you willing to suffer what has to be suffered here knowing that you have eternal life? I mean, here, the Bible teaches that this life is like a vapor that passes away. It appears for a short time, and then it's gone. So where are you going to put all of your hope? Where are you going to put all of your confidence in, in things that you have in this life or put them in God? Now, Paul is talking here about an eternal reward. And it's, he wonders, if he lived here today and was talking to us, he's saying, why do you put all your stock in the stock market? And why do you put all of your stock in a vacation house on the lake? And why do you put your stock on Easy Street and your, and your hope in your retirements, why, retirement plans? Why do you put all your hope in that stuff? And he says, if that's what you do, you're not a real Christian. And so God's people are people who sell out to him. And the attitude that they have is just like that of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm not talking here about divesting yourself of wealth. You see, if that's all you're thinking about right now, then you just don't get the picture. This is talking about divesting yourself of all that you are, of putting everything that you have in the hands of God. And if that should mean your wealth, then so be it. If it means suffering persecution, so be it. In fact, this is what Jesus says it does mean. It is enough to be as the master. It's enough for a slave to be like his Lord. That's because we are exalted to heavenly places in Christ. But it gets better than that. Number two, we are equals as sons with God. We've moved out or he moved into his household in order to be treated on an equal basis with Christ as joint heirs of his inheritance. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, you have your Bibles open there. Let's go to the book of Romans chapter 8 for a minute. And you might want to link this passage with Matthew 25. Maybe put a marker there that points to Romans 8. Because Paul puts the idea of suffering into the right perspective here. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now there it tells us that when you're saved, you've been adopted into the household of God. Now, adoption is a very important concept here because when Paul writes to the Romans, they understood that adoption means that a person has become now the legal heir to his father. Now, today, an adopted child, and this is sad to say, 
and, 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 and I, I, don't hope, I hope it's not true in a case of anybody that's here today, but today there are many times when a, an adopted child is considered to be a lesser part of the family, a lesser part of the family. But in the Roman world, it wasn't that way. Because what a father would do, a, a rich father, he, he would practically disown his own son if that son did not turn out to what he wanted him to be. And what he would do is that he would go and look for another son outside of his own family. And he would adopt that son. And when he adopted him, he gave him all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. He became an adopted member of the family. And that adopted member, that adopted son, inherited his father's title and inherited all of his estate. Now, that's what God is saying here, what Paul is saying about adopted sons. Because what God does is that he severs, he severs us from our old natural life, everything that we were before. He takes us out of the family of the world, and he puts us into his own family with all rights and privileges of a person who is a member of the family. Now, now read how Paul says this brings about equality with Christ. In verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I don't want you to mistake what Paul's saying, what I'm saying. He's not saying that when you become a Christian that you receive God status. Or that when you go to heaven, you'll have God status. Not like the Mormons think and some others think. You are not equal to Christ in that way. We are equal in the inheritance. We're equal because everything that the Father has has been given to Christ and given to us as joint heirs with Christ. Now listen as he goes on here because the next part brings suffering and persecution into the picture. Verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, listen, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So let's put it simply here. If you're not willing to suffer persecution, then you don't get the glory of Christ. And if you haven't surrendered yourself to all that faith in Christ requires, then you don't get the glory of Christ. You don't get the inheritance of Christ. You don't get salvation in Christ. Everyone that's saved, God will eventually glorify. And so a person who thinks that saving faith doesn't mean surrender to the lordship of Christ and, and suffering that's incurred by living for Christ, that person has the wrong idea of what being a Christian really means. True Christians accept that when they come to Christ. There's no such thing as a born-again Christian who goes on living in sin and goes on doing his own thing. You have become equal with Christ. The disciple is not, or the disciple is as his master, and the servant is not above his Lord. So you have to have a whole package if you're going to be a Christian. Now what I'm afraid of is that there are too many members of the church that are flying under our radar. We may not know who you are. We may not know what your life is like. You may fool me, and you might fool yourself. But you can't fool God. You'll never fly under God's radar. He knows who you are. So he speaks here of commitment. Then he adds the topping to it in verse number 18. Suffering, commitment. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, that's an interesting word in the New Testament, the word reckon. You know, from the South, we use the word reckon a lot. And... Uh, it's not like, well, I guess this is so. I reckon it's so. I, that's just the way it figures out to me. 
That's not what he means. He means absolutely without hesitation. Suffering in this life is worth it. If I have to suffer for Christ, that's okay because the return that I have made on my investment is so high there is no comparison. So Jesus says you'll suffer with him. That goes with being a Christian. And if you're unwilling to take that cost, then you can't be a disciple. Thus, you are not a Christian. So forget about this. All the teaching that you hear today about being favored by the world or Christianity is a way to line your pockets. If that's what you think, then you have no part of Christ. Now, there's just so much in Scripture about this that, that you have to be spiritually illiterate not to see this. I mean, you look at the rich man that Jesus told to forsake everything that he had to follow him. That's in John or Luke 14, 33. Jesus says, He that does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Read Luke 14, 27, which is essentially the same thing as he says in Matthew 10, 38. He says, Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, here is the problem, folks is that the airwaves of radio and television are filled up with spiritual illiterates that have confused the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be taken in by a false gospel. Don't be taken in by one that sells you on all these other things that supposedly are promised with becoming a Christian. That's to be dangerously deceived by a false gospel. Now, let me start right back where we, where we began today. There is another gospel out there that is not the gospel of Christ. Sometimes, when it's termed in many different ways, there are many different gospels, but one of those out there today is the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. If it sells itself that way, it's wrong. Even if it sells itself as a type of fundamentalism that says that justification and sanctification can be split, so that you can have one without the other. That is not the gospel of the Scripture. The Bible teaches that everyone that Christ sanctifies or justifies, he sanctifies. And so you're not going to be a child of his and live like the devil every day. The cost of following Christ is high because the disciple is not above his master. He's not different from his master. It means what they did to him, they'll do to you. And if you're unwilling to take that, is it, it is as likely that you can be a Christian as it was that Jesus didn't go to the cross. He did, and you aren't, if that's what you think. So if you're not like him, then you need to get like him. I believe in God's sovereignty, and I believe in human responsibility. I don't try to justify that in all ways. It's impossible to do. But I do know this. If you don't fit the passage, then you need to ask Christ to save you. You need to repent of your sins, put your faith in him, and come to him in complete surrender. All I've done today is just give you basic fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. And the rest of this chapter is filled with this. And the question is, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to surrender to him? You can't hold out and be a child of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word the truth that we find in your word and the commitment that you require of those who trust in you. And Lord, we're not in any way trying to imply that a person has to give up things in order to be a Christian. We're simply trying to show that a person has really committed himself to Jesus Christ and has a faith that is real. These things will be worked out in his life. And if the evidence is not there, then that person is not a true believer in you. 
There's a standard that's been set by God, and Christ helps us to brings us to that standard. He is our obedience, and our lives change. We're sanctified. We live like we should live. And if we don't, then there's no reason to call ourselves Christian. Lord, I, I pray that you would show some person that truth today, enlighten them to, this, to the truth of the word that you spoke here in, in Matthew chapter 10. Bless our people as we sing. May we surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.